Welcome, welcome to our Equip Hour at North Lake Bible Church. We are back in the book of Proverbs, chapter 16. Perfect. Y'all have settled down so nicely. It's, you, did, you did a perfect job. Let's go ahead and pray and we'll get started with our morning. Father, we recognize that this morning is yours. Every morning is yours. We gather on Sunday mornings to be a corporate body of your children, of your people that you have saved for your purposes and that you empower to accomplish those purposes. And we praise you for all of that. Lord, this morning as we open your word, our prayer is that you would expose the truth of your word and imprint it on the fabric of our hearts and let your word supersede and take over and change whatever it needs to change this morning. Lord, let us praise you in the areas that we follow after you. Lord, let us with contrition repent and follow forth in righteousness and pursuit of you of things that we need to change. And Lord, we give you much praise and adoration that you are patient with us. And Lord, that you are uh, a caring, loving, lovingly kind God that is also just and sovereign, that we don't have to fear any outcomes. We know that you will always accomplish your will. Pray that you'd help us to see that in your word this morning. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to think what's in common between these next three ideas. Seafarers. Put your mind back at the giant wooden ships with the big sails that navigated the oceans. And then Lewis and Clark, who made their way east and then westward into this country, mapping out the unknown frontier. And then something a little bit more current, a group of people called Wazers. Wazers. Those are the people that use the Waze app to get around the Metroplex. You're a call, if you didn't know you had a label, you do. That little blue app that gets you from here to there and lets you know where accidents are. Waze is a perfect app. It works really well. But you are called a Wazer. Something in common between all three of those groups of people, seafarers, Lewis and Clark, and Wazers, those that use GPS, is that they're all navigating. They're going, they're, they're setting a destination point. They're saying, hey, I probably need to go left, right, forward, backwards. I have to navigate between all the obstacles and along the way, just like in current day when you're trying to get to work on time and then an accident happens, there are things that take place that may make you need to bob and weave around them or be content with your current set of circumstances and wait on the Lord. It's that reality of navigating the details of life is what brings us together this morning in the Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 16 verses 1 to 9 is how do we navigate these details of daily life. I'll read our passage for us this morning. This is Proverbs chapter 16, verses one to nine. It says, the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. Commit your works to the Lord and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. By loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for. And by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. 
Better is a little, right, little with righteousness. Cue page turn. Then great income with injustice. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. We're going to go through all nine of those Proverbs and we are going to see four realities of life. We're going to see the first reality, which is that people are planners. We're going to see a second reality, that God is sovereign. And we're going to see a third reality, that people are proud. Just, I like to headline when things hit us, and that's where we get squished by God's word. So it's coming. Just be aware that it's coming, is that people are proud. We're going to deal with that. And then the fourth reality is that there is salvation and sanctification in God's providence. He gives us the answer. He gives us the answer. The theme, it's on the top of the note sheet. If you don't have one, they're in the back on those two chairs. Uh, But if you have one, the theme's on the top. But the theme of our passage is wisdom declares that man humbly and reverently submit his plans to the sovereign and just purposes of the Lord. Wisdom declares that man humbly and reverently submit his plans to the sovereign and just purposes of the Lord. And we're gonna take a look at that. We're in the book of Proverbs, which is all about wisdom for the details of life. And Solomon either gathered or wrote these Proverbs together underneath God's sovereign inspiration so that we could know how to do this. As we talked as prior Sundays, we've gone through it. Proverbs are not promises. Proverbs are general principles of life that we can look forward to to know that God holds to be true. But we also know that even this morning, you make a plan, you desire an outcome, it may not turn out the way you thought, even though we read a verse earlier that says that if you commit your works to the Lord, then God's going to establish your plans. They're not promises. They are general principles of life um, is where we're going. But we're going to tackle all of these things this morning. So to the first point, which is reality number one, people are planners. This is looking at verses one and two, but just the first half of those two verses. In verse one, the first half of it says, the plans of the heart belong to man. And on your, 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 your notes, it says, desires of the heart become my plans. And this is only expected if we think about it. God is a planner. God set forth, if you go read Genesis 1, 26 and 27, you will see that God said, let us make man in our image and then we have purposes for him and then we're going to do it, we're gonna execute the plan and then we did it. God is a planner. So it only makes sense that you are also, that we are also planners. We're made in his image. That's an aspect of creation that is unique to us that we can think and reason and plan and relate and emote and have desires and then go accomplish those desires. So planning is not bad. It's actually part of the unique creation of being an image bearer of God. And our plans are of the heart. The plans of the heart belong to man. And so what this means is that every plan we make, every whether it's a great grand plan with a binder that guides you and those cool index tabs and your laminated sheets, or if it's a kind of a winging it style plan, either one, it came from within you. It came from your internal desires down to the root level, down to the very basis emotions and desires, very raw sometimes is where our desires come from. It's of the heart, they're ours. And that last phrase of that first half of that verse, it says they belong to man means that these plans that we make, they're ours. We never mind, at least I, I say we, that's, un, that's unfair. I never mind when I make a plan and the outcome turns out the way I wanted, owning the outcome. Like, yeah, I did a really good job. That was a good plan. I never mind owning that outcome. 
It's when it doesn't work out the way I thought or I learned that I did it wrong along the way. Those are the outcomes. I was like, eh, maybe that plan, someone else made it go sideways. That wasn't me. Sadly, that's just not true. Our plans belong to man. They're ours. We own them. We are the author of them. We designed them. They came from our desires. They came from our internal thoughts and feelings, and we executed them, and we own all the steps of the way. So there's a reality moment I want to call. It means that we are always making a plan. You're always doing it. Again, thoughtful or not thoughtful, you're always making a plan. You always have a reflection in your heart that's going, it's as if you could hold a mirror to your heart's desires, like, "Mm, my heart wants that. It could be a good thing. It could be a not good thing. But you're always making a course, a set of events, trying to figure out how do I get there? We're always doing that and we own them. The next part of reality number one is that the desires of the heart are seen as clean by me or by us. So this is the first half of verse two. It says, all the ways of a man are clean in his own sight. All the ways. Every aspect of that plan that we just made, we look at it and we again, we own all of it. So the the initial steps, the initial desires, the making of the plan, whether it's small to grand, the all includes all of it. Even the desires that we had that birthed just the thought that prompted the idea that then spawned the action. And when we think about all those ways, they are said they are clean in his own sight. This word clean is the same word for pure. It means when we look at our plans, we tend to think that's a good plan. We tend to think, yeah, I should probably do that. I wanted the thing, I should go get the thing. And I don't see anything wrong with trying to get the thing. That's generally how our hearts talk to us about our plans. All of them are seen as clean or pure in our sight. So we're making these according to our nature. Our nature happens to be flawed and sinful. So that means our plans might have a flaw in them. But unless someone holds up a different standard than what our own internal thinking and conscience is saying, then we're, gonna not, we're probably not going to see the flaw. We may not see the sin that's there. We are plan makers, and all of these desires that we have are clean in our own sight. So I'll ask you, what's wrong with mankind evaluating our own purposes without a different standard? What's wrong with that? Well, other than it's just wrong, Ruth, yep, it's just plain old wrong. I had an accounting professor in college that said, this is how you know if you should do that or not. And he said, bend your arm from this way back. And I'm like, ow, it hurts. Like, yeah, that taint right. It was in Lubbock, Texas, so it means it isn't right. So the taint, right? Yeah, it's just wrong. Short-sighted and then what? And and which says the heart of man is deceitful and desperately wicked, right? Yeah, so our hearts are not out for God's good. Our hearts are not out for God's good. Our hearts are out for our good. Okay, yeah. So we have a flaw in how we assess what we're doing. We're sinful. Our hearts are deceived and wicked. Isaiah hits this, Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6. He says, for all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment and all of us wither like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind, iniquities like the wind take us away. The commentator David Guzik writes this. He says, by instinct, men and women justify themselves and see their own ways as pure. Some of the most criminal and violent people have thought themselves pure in their own eyes. And then he quotes Spurgeon. 
who says, they who are best acquainted with mankind will tell you that self-righteousness is not the peculiar sin of the virtuous, but that most remarkably, self-righteousness flourishes best where there appears to be the least soil for it. If you walked into a group of people that were honestly and sincerely doing their very best to follow the Lord in a humble way, you're not gonna find a lot of self-righteousness. You're just not, because they're trying to do what's right. But the rest of the world, you walk into that group of people, either, either violent and criminal or just kind of average, there's a lot of like, yeah, I'm okay. When you go to share the gospel with someone, a common answer is, I think God's going to be okay with me. Consider the self-righteousness that is happening right there. That's what we're talking about. That's the problem of seeing our own plans according to our own standards. So a reality moment, it's a reality that if I evaluate my plans by my standards, by my own thinking alone, it's highly likely I am going to miss a flaw in my plan. When I say a flaw, I'm going to miss a sinful aspect of my desires and it's just going to be me want what I want and not pursuing what the Lord wants. High likelihood. Or at least I'll see my desires as less than sinful or less than someone else's bad plan and I'll go forward with it anyway. So there's a key moment. We've established, we've established that mankind, because we're image bearers, that planning is good. Planning is good. We make plans. That's part of how God has made us. We've also established that our standard set if it's not God's standard, is going to leave us wanting. So is that enough to be considered wise in God's estimation? And the Proverbs we're looking at will tell us no. So look at verses 1, look at verse 2, and look at verse 9. Go to the middle of those verses, you'll find a comma. To the right, or on the next line after that comma, there's a word. It's three letters. It's but. It's because... This is our signal that God is about to instruct us that, hey, yes, you make plans. Yes, you see them right in your own eyes. Yes, you, your mind has a plan formed, but as we're going to see in our rally point number two, you are not sovereign. Rally point number two is it, but God is sovereign, which means he is going to detail for us what is wise. So if we're going to finish the puzzle so we can make plans that do please the Lord, we need to look at, look at reality point number two, which is God is sovereign and factor that in. This is going to look at verses one, two, three, four, five, seven, and nine. This is the phrase we're looking for is the Lord. As we look through all of these verses, we're looking for the phrase the Lord. So you'll see it happens in all of these verses. Poor verse eight doesn't have it, uh, but we'll, it's okay. We'll come back to verse eight and give us its own due. But every one of these verses has the phrase the Lord in it. And it makes total sense. In small group on, on Monday night, Brooke, you shared a verse that worked perfectly for this. There's Romans 11.36. Like, well, why does the Lord matter so much? Romans 11.36 says, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. It's because everything works from him, to him, and through him. And that's, we're going to see that as we look at the characteristics of the Lord's sovereignty in these next few verses. So verse 1 is where we're going the second half now, it says, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. So the answer of the tongue is from the Lord, not just the result. It doesn't say the result is from the Lord. It says the answer of the tongue is from the Lord, which means that he's sovereign even down to the word level. And we know elsewhere in scripture that he's sovereign even down to the thoughts level. He knows, but I'll give you an example from scripture. You remember Balak and Balaam? Right? Balak is the king of Moab. Balaam is hired, purchased his 
cursing ability to curse the nation of Israel as they work through towards the promised land. And Balak and Balaam have this exchange, says, I'm going to hire you. And Balaam says, okay, which means he wanted the money. He wanted to do the job. Okay, so he signs up for the job. And three times this same thing happens. This is out of Numbers 23. So after the first time Balaam tries to curse Israel and it fails, he ends up blessing Israel, Balak says to Balaam in chapter 23, 11 to 12, he says, what have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies, but behold, you have actually blessed them. Balaam replies, must I not be careful to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? And so they reset and they go to a different mountain point. Okay, try it again. All right. After that one, in verse 25 and 26, Balak says to Balaam, do not curse them at all, nor bless them at all. But Balaam replied to Balak, did I not tell you whatever the Lord speaks, that I must do? And like many of us, they're slow to get the point, so they try it a third time. And in chapter 24, we see the result of that third attempt. This is verses 10 to 13. It says, then Balak's anger burned against Balaam, and he struck his hands together, and Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies, but behold, you have persisted in blessing them these three times. Therefore, flee to your place now, and I said, I would honor you greatly, but behold, the Lord has held you back from honor. In Balaam's response, did I not tell your messengers whom you had sent to me, saying, though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not do anything contrary to the command of the Lord, either good or bad, of my own accord. But the Lord speaks, that I will speak. The answer of the tongue is from the Lord. He's sovereign to accomplish his purposes down to the word level. The next area of sovereignty is the second half of verse 2. And it says, but the Lord weighs the motives. I label this that righteousness is assessed by the Lord. He weighs the motives. This idea of weighs is a scale. It's a balance. We've seen those. You might have seen ancient pictures of those. You might have a a relic in your home, something that weighs them. We don't use scales like that often anymore. But it comes from the word tekel. And where we see that word tekel is Daniel chapter 5. In the feast room of Belshazzar, Daniel's there. And then the hand starts writing on the wall. And we see that one of the words that God uses is tekel in that statement that he writes on the wall, which means you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. It's this idea of weighing for are you sufficient or are you deficient against God's sovereignty? So he is the one that weighs the motives. He's all-knowing, he's just, and he's accurate in his assessment. This idea of motives is talking about the deep intentions of your heart. The things that we have a hard time putting words around, but it's there. The deep intentions of your heart and down to the most intimate detail. I'm going to take you to Psalm 139 so we can get a sense of what is that? How does God know that? Verses 1 to 4 of Psalm 139 says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. He's sovereign down to the intentions of the heart level. And you can see this expressed again when Samuel called David, when he anointed David to be king. We see that in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I've rejected him, the other brothers. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And where we've been in Hebrews, I'm layering on thick because we have to understand that God's sovereign and knows us that way. Hebrews 4.12 says, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 
He knows us clearly, deeply, beyond the ability that we could even know ourselves. God is sovereign over even those aspects of our lives. He knows our desires. Another aspect of his sovereignty comes in verse three. It says, commit your works to the Lord and your plans will be established. He establishes the plans. That word established means is that he sets them. He keeps them secure, stable, enduring. He is the one that cements them and makes them solid and, and provides the outcome. The tense of the verb establish, your, your plans will be, it will be established. It's third person passive. It means that someone else is doing the work to you. God is establishing those things. If we make a plan and it's not the works of the Lord that we're after, he's not going to establish that one. He establishes the works of the Lord. We need to fall underneath that sovereignty. Another aspect of his sovereignty is in verse four. It says, the Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. This one is, we need to take this apart in pieces. The Lord has made everything. When we forget that he's the creator and author of every single atom and piece of life that we exist in, there's a dangerous element that's coming, that's creeping in, like, I forgot that you created me, and so I'm starting to operate on my own. He has made everything. There's nothing outside of his authority. And he's made everything for its own purpose. So the sovereign Lord of the universe has a purpose that he will fulfill, and nothing can thwart it. Nothing can get in the way, even though, like we see in the next phrase, even the wicked for the day of evil. This isn't saying that God makes people evil. This is saying that God's plans will be accomplished in spite of the wicked. And so on the day of evil, when God comes to judge, if someone had stayed unrepentant, if someone had not taken full measure of his iniquity and had Christ cover it, he will pay that punishment. God will fulfill his purposes. Another element of his sovereignty comes from verse five. It says, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. God's justice and God's judgment are sovereign over all of the earth. We're gonna pull it in verse five a little bit more in another point, so I'll move on. Verse six brings in the fact that salvation and sanctification are from the Lord. Verse six says, by loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. Not only is he just and judge in verse five, but he's also savior and sanctifier in verse six. His sovereignty covers everything. In verse seven, the latter half, it says he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. So his provision is from the Lord. Even to, think about that, to make your enemies be at peace with you, they wouldn't be called an enemy if you would have been successful in the past, right? They would be a friend, but they're still your enemies. He says this extreme example of I can accomplish the extreme. I can accomplish the impossible. I can even make your enemies be at peace with you. God's sovereign over all these areas of life. His provision is sovereign. And then in verse nine, the latter half, it says, but the Lord directs his steps. His direction is from the Lord. That means his actual accomplishing your steps is from the Lord. He is sovereign in every aspect of life. Everything is either from the Lord, by the Lord, to the Lord, or of the Lord. So in the second reality, we have established that God is sovereign over all aspects of our lives, over all aspects of all life. And so now we have, hopefully you see in your mind, a contrast. Reality number one is people are planners. Reality number two is that God is sovereign. 
So there's the contrast. How do we reconcile these two? How could people be planners to have a desire? I set forth steps. I go to accomplish my purpose. And then, but yet God is sovereign in every one of these spaces. How do I reconcile those two? What should I think about that? And that's where we hit reality number three. And the reality is, is that people are proud. People are proud. And this goes back to verse five. I told you we come here. It says that everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. I just set up that contrast that people are planners and plan's a good thing. Planning is a good thing. But God is sovereign over all these intentions and purposes and plans. He is the one that's fulfilling his purposes. So unless we put a desire and a purpose that we have in submission to his will, there's some amount of pride happening somewhere in our hearts and our desires and our plan making and our thinking. It's just there. Because if we weren't fully submitting to his will, then we are saying my will is more appropriate for one reason or another, for one aspect of this plan, for another, whatever it is. That's the reality that we're looking at, is that people are proud. So you might think, okay, great. Well, then who isn't proud to some extent? Good question. No one. We all deal with this. We all suffer. Ah, suffer's the wrong word. We all sin in this way, is that we have to deal with our pride. And so you might be thinking, not me. That's not me. So let me put a little test out there. It's just me. Y'all are fine. When you start to make a plan, when you set forth, it happened in January for some of you that do the resolution thing, right? It might happen any random time. Uh, But you start a plan, what's the first word that you think of when you start making a plan? Someone just mouthed it, nailed it, crushed it. It's the word I. And if it's two of you making a plan, it could be we. So you say, Drew, I can escape because you didn't say we, so I'm okay. No, it's I or we or my. It's That's where we start. Think about that. I want, my desires are, we would like to accomplish. We think a good thing to do is, I would like to go forth and do that. Think about where we start. We start with us. We're plan making. We have a purpose. Again, I'm not saying that having a desire and a purpose, setting forth the way to do it, and then going to do it is bad. No, that is an aspect of being an image bearer. How we do that is super key. How we do that is super key. So we just proved to ourselves, whether we liked it or not, that there's some pride lurking there around us, if not in us. And James, in chapter 4, verse 13 to 16, calls a moment on us. And he says, hey, oh, let me instruct you. James says in chapter 4, verse 13 to 16, he says, come now. You who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. So as we make plans, we need to ask ourselves, are we like the folks in verse 13 of James chapter four, who say we will go to a place and do such and such a thing and make a profit? Are we like those folks? Or are we like the folks in verse 15 that James instructs us to be like, which says that if the Lord wills, then we'll go and accomplish a purpose. Now, that if the Lord wills phrase is not a magic set of words. 
It's getting to the heart intent, which we will get to. Um, unless we're completely in alignment with God's sovereignty, and then we're operating with some sense of pride. That's why James instructs us to go back to what the Lord wants and put your plans and submission to that. Solomon writes that someone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. He uses that word abomination. That's a strong word. That's not just like, yeah, they're annoying. Or, yeah, they frustrate me sometimes. No, they're an abomination. They shouldn't be. They're an abhorrence. Jesus uses that word in Luke chapter 16, 15. He says, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So what about this pride thing inside of humanity is so bad that God labels it an abomination? That's a question for y'all. What makes it so bad that it's not just a, hey, that's something you shouldn't do. No, it's an abomination. It should not even exist. What makes it so bad? It doesn't acknowledge God. It places us higher than God. Those are right answers. So if you're thinking, he didn't stop, he's still waiting, they were wrong. No, they were completely accurate. I'm just getting a drink. Someone else has a thought they can say it. Yeah, thank you for going to the very first fall, the very first one, non-human. Isaiah chapter 14 says this, verses 12 to 14, it says, how have you fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn? You have been cut down to the earth. You have weakened the nations, but you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God and I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. That is a description of the king of Babylon from the prophet Isaiah, but it also doubles over to what happened to Lucifer when he fell. You can see the same thing or similar thing against the kings of Tyre and Sidon in Ezekiel 28. It's a description of what it was when he fell. What was going on in Satan's heart when he fell? He says, I will make myself like the most high. When we place our purposes above God's, that's how we need to see that moment. It's not a small moment. It's a scary moment. It's a big moment. The Lord labels that pride of placing your will above his, of placing my will above his as an abomination. That was really hard to learn this week. It was really hard to say to you just now because I know the conviction it puts us under. But that's the truth. That's what's happening when we place our will above his own. It is not a small thing. The Lord calls it an abomination. And he says, assuredly, he will not be unpunished. It won't be left unaddressed. Now, maybe the addressing of that happens when we see him at the throne room, right? From when, maybe it comes when he comes back. Or maybe he gives discipline on the way to believers or maybe he calls someone in their lifetime to figure it out. But he won't leave it unaddressed. That pride will be humbled. So mankind has a serious problem. It's not just that we start thinking of, pro of plans with I desire, I want, or we desire, we want. It's that the reality of that is placing our will above his. And that is a dangerous place. But God doesn't leave us there. 
We know that if our plans are submitted and they are corrected by the purposes of God, then they will be humble. And we know that they, could be, they will be accepted and that all the truths of how God's sovereignty applies to our lives, he will establish those plans. So in reality, number one, we saw that we are planners and that's a good thing. Reality number two, we saw that God is sovereign. In reality number three, we saw that we have a problem with pride. In reality number four, he doesn't leave us without hope, but it rather provides it. Verses three and then six through nine, we're gonna see these aspects of hope that God provides. I'm gonna start in verse six. We'll hit verse three in a moment. In verse six, he says, by loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for. By loving kindness and truth, iniquity is atoned for. The language here, you would ask, well, who's doing the loving kindnesses and who's supplying the truth? And it's coming from the Lord like the rest of this passage is. So it means the Lord is lovingly kind and truthful and he atones for iniquity, which is what we have seen happening in Hebrews. It means that God is providing atonement for iniquity himself because we can't do that. He's providing it. He provided it through his perfect son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, the very son of God, came to earth, took on flesh, and lived a perfect life, the one that you and I could never live because we have that pride issue. We have that sin of pride in our hearts. We could never live that life. But he lived that life and then he humbled himself to the point of death and even death on the cross, as Philippians puts it, where God poured out his just wrath on his perfect son so that our iniquity would be atoned for. The perfect image bearer would bear our sins. And not only that, but then he gave us his perfect righteousness in exchange. If that's true for you this morning, that you have repented of your sins and placed your faith in Christ, that Jesus Christ who atoned for your sins and gave you his righteousness instead, then you can apply the truths of submitting to God's will. And you should, we all should. But if that's not true for you this morning, if you're in there thinking, man, I'm a prideful person and that abomination word is huge and scary, you're right, it is. God invites you, like Isaiah 55 and 6 to 7 says, to seek him right now. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. He desires that you would repent right now and come to him in faith. The commentator David Guzik says this about loving kindness and truth. He says, in mercy and truth, atonement is provided. God, in his mercy and truth, provided atonement for iniquity. God's mercy prompted the great sacrifice of Jesus Messiah on the cross and his truth made it necessary to make atonement in a way that honored the righteousness of God. We saw this just last week in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 to 14, speaking about Jesus. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he is perfected for all time those who are sanctified. We have a great God and Savior who has provided salvation for all of us, but he didn't leave us at salvation. He's also provided us the knowledge and the empowerment to be sanctified, to be made more like him as we walk. And that's where the latter half of chapter, or, or chapter 16, verse six speaks. It says, the second half of verse six, and by the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. By the fear of the Lord, one keeps us away from evil. This takes us all the way back to chapter one of Proverbs, verse seven. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. I want you all to turn to chapter two. 
if you would please. Chapter two of Proverbs. And we're gonna see how the fear of the Lord and the beginning of knowledge actually keep us from the evil way, just like the Lord promises in verse six. Chapter two, verses one to eight. It says, my son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. For if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He's a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice, and he preserves the way of his godly ones. You just saw a map of what our lives can look like if we're gonna fear the Lord and turn away from evil. If you're looking at chapter two still, look at the action words, the verbs. Receive my words, treasure my commandments, be attentive to wisdom, incline your heart, cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding, which is yelling, I want to understand, right? Going after it. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasure. That's where we can examine our life. If we're walking with the Lord to turn away from evil, our life will look like that. That will be real. That will be true. The Lord gives wisdom. You can make your way back to chapter 16 now. Thank you for going there. The Lord gives wisdom. And from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. And when we follow that, we keep away from evil. But he didn't leave us just there with that idea. We're gonna bounce back to verse three and then back to seven, eight, nine. He's gonna give us steps, things we can practically do in our daily lives to walk in a way before him. In verse three, he says, commit your works to the Lord and your plans will be established. That word commit in, in Hebrew means to roll something heavy. Have you ever had to move something heavy enough that you needed help doing it? Yeah, I think most people have, right? Um, this is talking about rolling a huge stone, right? Uh, this is the idea that you need to roll it. You can't do it on your own and you only wanna do it once, right? It, it's gonna be a final thing. That commit here says commit your works to the Lord, meaning roll them to the Lord, put them before the Lord, submit them before the Lord, which is hard to do. And it takes help. It's this idea of dependence. Depend on the Lord in both the planning of your efforts and the doing of your efforts. The psalmist in Psalm 55, says it this way. He says, cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. In 1 Peter 5, 7, Peter says, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. This is a willful submission. A desire of your heart to say, I'm gonna take my purposes and plans and I'm gonna willfully submit it's hard to do that, to ask for help, to see my dependence, but I must have God's help. So what does this practically look like on your daily life? How do y'all willfully submit yourselves underneath God's sovereign will as you make plans and purposes? How do you do that? Prayer. What do you pray? You don't have to like, here's the exact thing I said yesterday or today. But what do you pray? <clears throat> Ask God to submit our hearts to his will. 
Good. What else do we do? Yeah. We look at his word. We pray for wisdom. James chapter 1 says that he gives to all generously and without reproach. It means that if you ask what we think is a simple question, like I should know this, but I don't. I should be wise here, but I'm not. And we fear that God would be like, stop asking the simple stuff. He doesn't do that. He loves us. He loves you. He wants you to ask. He says, give to all generously and without reproach. And according to his word, that's where we go. I wrote down two ways that it looks like. It looks like pouring out your heart to the Lord, which prayer, but all of it, like all of it good, bad, and the renewing of your thinking. Think like David thinks when you read one of his psalms. There are actions taking place and he reacts to those actions with intensity. And then he places his trust and faith in the Lord, renews his mind and his thinking and takes the next steps. That's pouring out our hearts to the Lord, is recognizing that this is what I want. I think it's a good thing, but I also have these other desires in me and I think I realize I'm a sinner and I can have flaws or I... I've seen that I am a sinner in this area and I need to repent. So you land at contrition when you pour out the good and the bad. You land at contrition. It's like now you have a humble heart and then you can ask God for wisdom. Yes. Yeah, so not only, not only, I think I would, you let me know, I hear you saying it's not just the, us trusting the Lord and hey, I'm trying to be the wise as I can as I make some steps, but I'm going to trust the Lord that the outcomes that happened were right. Not right in the world's sense of right or my sense of right, but right in the sense that God sovereignly brought those outcomes. Yeah, contentment when I didn't get what I want, right? That, that's tough. See dependence. See, see, pour out your heart. Good, bad, renew your thinking, keep moving. It was convicting to me to think, how often do I pray in a way that I'm not pouring out all of my heart as if God did not know it? But I'm not voicing it. I'm not talking to God about it. And if I'm not, then I'm hiding it. That was convicting to me as I looked at this. The second thing you could do as you practically do it is it looks like overtly re-preaching God's goodness and sovereignty to yourself as many times as you need to do it. Right, to your point, the outcome doesn't look that I'm looking for, uh, God is sovereign, God is sovereign, God, you know, it's like it's not my desires that win here, is re-preaching the goodness of God's word, his mercy, the reality that he judged Christ instead of you, he judged Christ instead of me for sin, the reality of grace, he gave me salvation that I don't deserve, the idea of faithfulness, that he is faithful even when we can't or won't reciprocate, that we won't give it back, and the idea that he is truthful. The very words of God instruct me and guide me. That's why we commit our works to the Lord, the outcomes and the efforts. Another area that we can move forward is in verse seven. It says, when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. We looked at this extreme power a little bit earlier, but this brought to my mind that, okay, great, we'll define a man's ways and I'll just go do that. That sounds great because those are the ways that are pleasing to him. 
And in Micah 6, verses 7 to 8, he says this really clearly. He says, does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He's told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. That's how we please the Lord. Missy, you were going to verse eight before I got there, which is awesome. No, it's perfect. It's perfect. When you beat the giver of the lesson to the truth moments, that means you're thinking. We like that. That's good. Better is a little with righteousness than great income with injustice. Better is a little with righteousness than great income with injustice. It's a couplet. You see that? And it's comparing two things. The intention of our hearts or of God's heart here is that you don't intend to contrast like, oh, well, little with great. That's the miss. Don't go little and great. Well, those are different. That's true. But the, the couplet is saying righteousness and injustice and which one's better. Righteousness is better. So pursue righteousness, whatever the outcomes are, that's the right one. And be content in that. It's not a promise that every single better moment's going to be like, yep, I don't have anything, but it's better. It's, that's not the promise of the verse. The, be, the promise of the verse is that if it's better to pursue righteousness, than injustice. Proverbs 15, 16, better is the little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Better in Proverbs 16, 19, to be lowly of spirit with the humble than to divide plunder with the proud. Better in Proverbs 28, 6, a poor man who lives with integrity than a rich man who distorts right and wrong. I just said it doesn't have anything to do with lots and littles. Why does God keep pointing to lots and littles as he says righteousness and injustice? Why does he point to that? He points to that because we are sinners and we want a lot. And our pride says, I deserve a lot. Psalm 73, the Psalm of Asaph is looking around. He sees all the wickedness, the fatness of their eyes. They're bulging and nothing's happening to them. And he almost slipped. And in the middle of that Psalm, he says, but I went back into the house of the Lord. He He reoriented his will, Galen, as you put it, and put himself underneath the Lord's will. And he sees that the end will come. Assuredly, they will not be unpunished. That's why God points at our hearts all the time and gives us those examples. But better is righteousness than injustice. And then the last thing he gives us is remember the Lord's sovereignty. In verse 9, he says, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. At the very end, we get to this and we go, but remember, remember As you're going to be tempted to next to say, but yeah, but I still want what I want. Remember that the Lord is sovereign. The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. The commentator David Guzik says it really well. He says, this is not a bad thing. We as the God in whose image we are made think about and plan our steps. Many people would do well to more carefully plan their way. It's like, "Eh, that's true. Many people would. We plan as we can and should, but we should never think that our ability to plan makes us Lord over our lives. It's the Lord who directs our steps. Every plan we make should be held in humility before God and in surrender to his ultimate will. We return to James chapter 4, 15 to be those people that say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. In summary, we've covered four practical realities of the details of life this morning. Number one, we saw that people are planners. The key takeaway is like, that's okay. Make plans, be thoughtful, be purposeful. Just submit them to the Lord and his will. The second reality we saw is that God is sovereign. The key takeaway there is trust him. Trust him. 
Proverbs chapter three, verse six says, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. I would like to go down the straight path. Reality number three says that people are proud. The key takeaway is that it is tempting to place our will above his and that is abominable. And number four, we saw that God provides the answer. The key takeaway is that God in his loving kindness and truth has purchased salvation for us. He's provided the way of sanctification for us, for all who repent of their sins and place their faith in Christ as Lord. I only have two application points for us today. Number one is submit your will in all things to the Lord's sovereignty. Do whatever you have to do. Submit your will in all things to the Lord's sovereignty. And the second, trust the Lord that his sovereignty is just. It's not just sovereign. It's just and sovereign. Miss it to your point. The outcomes are his and trust those. Pray with me, please. Father, I have been confronted with the truth of your word this morning. And where I am tempted to put my will above yours. And I praise you for the truthfulness and the concreteness and the outright calling of the moment that your word does that says point at my heart and say that is abominable. Lord, I, I, my prayer this morning for all of us is that we would do exactly what your word tells us to do in moments like this, which is to examine ourselves and to examine the way we make plans and the purposes of our hearts and to examine how we feed our hearts that influence our purposes and to align all of those moments underneath the authority of your word, underneath the sovereignty of your will, and Lord, to trust your just sovereignty in the outcomes with full contentment, regardless of what it is on a worldly scale. Lord, we thank you so much. I pray for all of our hearts that we would walk forward to be able to worship you better, having looked into your word this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.